Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now, the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Isvan Javorik. Yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. This episode's guests are Matt Van Dyke from VanDykeStrength.com and Max Schmarzo from Stronger by Science. Matt Van Dyke is the Associate Director of Applied Sports Science at the University of Texas. With the Longhorns, Matt is responsible for the complete oversight of the football team in regards to the management of training loads and recovery modalities implemented to each individual athlete 
in order to maximize performance and readiness. You can get his full bio in the show notes. Max is the Director of Sports Science and Research at Resilience Code, Chief Science Officer at Exergio Technologies and Founder of Stronger by Science. He has written two books along with Matt, Applied Principles of Optimal Power Development and Isometrics for Performance. And you can find links to these books in the show notes. On this episode, the three of us discuss Matt and Max's background. We get into an in-depth discussion around the guy's latest book, Isometrics for Performance. I asked the guys how much of an influence was Franz Bosch's work on their book. I asked the guys to lay out the different types of isometrics described in the book. I asked the guys about how isometrics can be used to improve local metabolite buffering within a target muscle. I asked the guys about how they use isometrics with beginners. The guys talk about how isometrics are a powerful means to increase tendon robustness. I asked the guys what did they think is the mechanism behind the performance benefits of long-duration isometrics. I asked the guys to discuss why an increase in catecholamine release from isometrics can be beneficial to performance. I asked the guys how do they measure the actual work being done with an isometric action. I asked the guys to talk about structural, neural and metabolic adaptations from isometrics. Here the guys talk about some really interesting adaptations that isometrics can have on hypertrophy and tendon properties, i.e. tendon stiffness. We get into an in-depth discussion on isometrics and tendon adaptations. Here the guys talk about how isometrics seem to impact more of the tendon architecture versus increasing tendon cross-sectional area. The guys also talk about how isometrics can improve a tendon's rate of force more so than its magnitude. I asked the guys to talk about isometrics beneficial use when dealing with pain and an early rehabilitation. I asked the guys about using isometrics to re-educate the body to express maximum voluntary contractions. The guys talk further about how isometrics can improve rate of force transmission of a tendon more so than the magnitude of force or a tendon's rate of force development. We speak about how you could possibly use jump profiling to determine if you should do more rate or magnitude contraction work on a given day. The guys talk about their use of APRE when prescribing the use of isometrics. We speak about how elite athletes are superior at relaxing their muscles as well as contracting them. Here, Max claims he found research in a translated Russian sports science book to support this claim. I asked the guys who have been their biggest influences. I asked the guys to give their top life advice to all of the listeners. And finally, I asked the two guys if they could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would they invite and why. Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Van Dyke, Schmarzo, those fucking names are unbelievable. You're like movie stars with those names. Van Dyke, Schmarzo, starring my podcast. So we're online, we're rocking and rolling. Thanks a million for making the time. Hopefully now the audio comes through well. But for the listeners, boys, who aren't too familiar with either one of you, which will probably not be too many listeners... Just give us an introduction, so uh, we'll go with Max. Take it away. Yeah, Max Schmarzo here. Um, I'm the director of sports science and research at the Resilience Code in Inglewood, Colorado. Also the chief science officer of Exergo Technologies and the founder of Strong by Science. Those are snuzzy snuzzy titles, man. (laughs) (laughs) I kept them all in the back pocket just for now. (laughs) 
It's like uh, he- Matt Van Dyke here. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Matt Van, Matt Van Dyke here. Um, I'm the associate director of applied sports science at the University of Texas. I oversee uh, the football team here as far as data management uh, and all other aspects performance based. Um, also work in Van Dyke strength on the side and then obviously pretty tied in with uh, with uh, Max and everything that, that we've done together lately. And you also have a whopper time. A what? You also have, <laughs> yes, he does. You, you also have an amazing time. Oh, yes, yes. Staying stand warm down here in Texas. Yeah, yeah. So just where we hopped online for the listeners, Matt was like saying that it's like, how hot is it in, in Austin right now? It's about 85 right now. Holy bananas. That's pretty hot. What's that? Do you know what that is in degrees? In degrees Celsius? Oh. No, I don't. We stick in Fahrenheit 80, over 85. here. 85. Ah. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's it, well. Let, let's just. I'll just put it this way for any of my Irish listeners. If we got that weather here, we'd we'd be telling all the kids to get out and remember this moment because it it won't come around again for a long time. <laughs> get out! Get out! The sun is out. You'll never see it again. Okay, boys. So I wanted to get you on because, in fairness to Max, he, he uh, sent me an email and he was like, "We'd love you to read the isometrics book after you heard my interview on Joel's Just Like Podcast, which is a fantastic podcast. Shout out to Joel." And so I read through this book, Isometrics for Performance, which is available on, on your website, which I'll put into the show notes. So I suppose first question will be, why did you decide to write this book? What, what made you think that isometrics was so important that it needed a, a book out um, there? Yeah, so it kind of stemmed from our other book, The Applied Principles of Power Development, where we kind of highlighted the utilization of PATH. Uh, post-activation potentiation and how you mm. can use that with some isometric mid-thigh poles or whatever specific positions. And we just got flooded with questions about isometrics. And Matt and I got to talking and was like, well, we should probably just make a book on it because I've been answering these thousands of questions on how you can use isometrics, how it's not only for post-activation potentiation, how you can use it for a whole slew of different um, reasons and modalities and ways in which you can integrate it. So we kind of got rolling, and I got my ADD on, and we basically wrote it in a weekend. Fuck uh, off! Are you serious? You wrote that book in a weekend? <laughs> you're like, you're like you fucking, you're like, you're like Pat Davidson. Pat Davidson wrote Mass One in like 14 hours, but like Pat is a fucking psychopath. Yeah, you can ask Matt. I go on these writing ventures where oh, it's it's crazy. Uh, the first book we wrote, I didn't make any sense when I wrote it. It was like scrambled thoughts. And Matt called me and was like in a panic. It was like, this is crap. Nothing makes sense. <laughs> Not in order. And why, then, so this next why is it all written in maths? I mean, there's it's no English in this. <laughs> really, though. It's like hieroglyphics and, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> random. And then the second one, I wrote an outline before I made it. And so we could at least follow it. Um, and then, obviously, Matt makes huge improvements to it, we add it, we work together, we discuss it. So it's not like I write it and Matt chimes in. It's I write, Matt writes, I write, Matt writes, Matt writes, I write, all the above. And uh, it's awesome to work with him because he has so many different insights from his triphasic background, from his coaching background. Mm-hmm. That He makes a lot of my uh, irrational thoughts rational. And, yeah, he obviously um, is – amazing to work with so big shout out to matt who's obviously on this call with me right now so pump him up while i can yeah thanks max no it's funny yeah max mentioned it it's just 
we got so many emails. We write this. We think this is great power book. And the only questions we got were, were about the PAP. We were, we were talking to each other and we were like, what did we what did we miss the boat here? And then we were like, well, we might as well expand on this. We've answered enough questions now. We've got all these emails saved up. We might as well just turn it into a book of yeah, like a yeah. Q&A of, of covering all those pieces. But it's been it's been a, it's been a wild ride. It's our our work abilities together match really well but it's interesting like we were talking before this like we're, we weren't even friends on skype like we wrote that first book we only <laughs> talked on the phone once. so it was a few texts here and there but it was just a, a google doc that went back and forth and it was just kind of like a, a never-ending cycle and and then it popped out well organized somehow and and we went from there so how, how did you boys get in contact in the first place then how, how did that even come about so i was at iowa state um, as a grad student, and Matt had graduated a couple of years before and played football there. And Matt simply had reached out and said, "Hey, um, saw your Iowa State." He knew some guys I was working with, Coach Beauregard, who was a great coach who I worked with while I was there, a strength coach. Um, and then Matt, we kind of got to talking about post-activation potentiation. And next thing you know, we were going to write an article, and it became a book. Um, that is, yeah, the article to a book stuff is impressive. And so we kind of had to speak a whole bunch during it because we were writing it. And the next thing, it's like 15, 30, 45, 100 pages. I was like, Matt, you want to just make this a book? And he's like, yeah, totally. And so we've been communicating ever since. Uh, and I guess we just got along well. And uh, we're both, I guess, weird enough that we can handle a working relationship strictly through text message. And uh, there's a lot yeah, well, of to, 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 to be honest, that's how most couples work nowadays anyway. So that's nothing new. That's... <laughs> <laughs> well that's what i'm trying to keep my distance max is following me around he moved to denver and then a week later i moved to texas i was like all right max is here i'll see you later yeah yeah, see, I, not, we, yeah you you my, you used to be in denver didn't you yeah i was in denver was what, six about. weeks ago and right like right as i was taking this job down here max moved to denver and i've met max one time he came over we ordered like pizza one night hung out I ate all of his pizza i ate yep. all of <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, well, I'll probably see you in like two years again next time we make, or uh, we connect. So I had about fucking 10, 10 more books written in between that time. Oh. <laughs> we got uh, yeah. more than the oven. <laughs> that, that, that one's cooking right now. <laughs> we, hey, we have an outline though, so we're good. We've got an outline. Yeah. <laughs> I love that saying, one in the oven, that's gas. I, I'll make that just like the one little quote from this whole podcast. People will be wondering, what the fuck's going on between those two? <laughs> probably the only useful quote we're gonna say i doubt it i doubt it right let's hop into it boys so you had seven chapters or sections as you called it in the book uh so and the seven sections were water isometrics then you went into the types of isometrics the physiology the adaptations the implementation of isometrics the how-to and then the last two chapters were applied isometric programming and then the importance of the isometrics and stress shortening cycle so obviously we'll just take it uh, section by section on the notes I have here, and just you boys connecting to it. So I mean, what are isometrics? I mean, it was uh, this like in that chapter, it's kind of basic you know, for most people. You gave a nice um, sort of um, example of like the different needs of isometrics. Like you gave the example of like lifting your arm versus a fork versus a deadlift um, and stuff like that. And uh, and then the role obviously it has in max velocity. You kind of finished up that chapter on that. 
just a question from that that I have for you guys. How much has Franz Bosch's and uh, Boston Bjorn's work influenced your your guys' thinking with regards to isometric training? So quite a bit. I'll hop on that answer first. Um, he obviously got me thinking about it, but what really kind of pushed me forward was after reading his book, I dove into the literature a lot more and really wanted to understand some of the concepts of muscle slap of the quasi-isometric state that you see in dynamic movements. And the isometric state, you obviously, we see when someone's generating force before they pull a deadlift. Um, there are some really interesting studies on it, looking back on Kubo, uh, some other authors who I can't even pronounce their name, so I'm not gonna bother trying. But um, it kind of started there, and really diving into it, you start to understand that movement isn't as um, eccentric, isometric, concentric as you might think. Mm. Sometimes, depending on the velocity, obviously, there are the quasi-isometric states you get when you're performing, say, a depth jump that is under a ground contact time that's fast enough, but also the role of isometrics in transmitting force, like a sprinter who's able to maintain an upright position, a deadlifter who's able to maintain um, a good position out of the hole, same with the squat, and how it plays a role in everything that we do, yet we're so busy only thinking about the prime movers that we don't think of isometrics role in transferring kinetic energy up and down the chain. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that completely. Um, pro probably the, the biggest piece for me was the experience that I had with uh, Cal Dietz at Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the triphasic piece, um, the, the muscle action gets kind of all the glory out of that uh, program, not necessarily the blocker modified undulated that he's done with it. But just for me, it was like the practical piece of seeing how we've trained for those stiffness qualities and like what max is saying that that transfer of force through the entire kinetic chain where you need stiffness um, to not only apply high levels of force but also apply that in an extremely rapid setting like in that sprinter whose foot is in contact with the ground for that eight hundredths of a second at an elite level it's like mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the work i did in my thesis i did some like counter movement jump force plate testing through that entire triphasic progression and, and that was, although we weren't testing for stiffness necessarily, we were testing post-muscle action training. And where we saw the biggest changes in some of those jumps was that post-ISO for that strength. And then we also mixed in some of the PAP that we were talking about into the speed work. So now we can apply that accelerative force in that isometric fashion rapidly. And then we can continue to produce force even in those higher velocities. Is that the data you put in the very last chapter? Is that from your PA, from your thesis? Um, pieces of it, yeah, like the the jump curves, things yeah. like that that we did. That that was uh, from my thesis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that cool. was just different athletes, or it was one athlete, and following them through the progression mm. of the strength versus power versus the speed um, to kind of show what we saw, and then the. Um, and some of that too, like we've done whole teams and that one might be in there is, is a whole team actually and how they progress. So it's kind of a team average rather than one individual. Yeah. So yeah. looking at the different qualities, whether it's going to be more of the tendon based or muscular based, based on the, um, the static versus the counter movement jump. Yeah. Uh, more questions around that that we'll get to. So chapter two then was the types of isometrics on the, there, it's funny because when you sent the book uh, to me, uh, Max, like I was making all these notes because I was, I, I was planning to send it back like, well, like you know, 
this is a good point, here's a good point, maybe this would be good for a study to, or reference, and then like there was like maybe one or two grammar errors because it was a draft just for people who were listening. But uh, the the chart that you had for that was class, I thought, like the little sort of um, flow chart of the of the different types of iso, isometric attraction. So maybe just get into that. So you have your long duration. You've got well, first of all, you have uh, isolation and complex. You've got long muscle length, short muscle length. Then you have long duration and, and explosives. And then with both long duration explosives, you have them divided into yielding, overcoming, and co-contraction. So if one of you guys want to sort of maybe get into those areas, that'd be great. Yeah, I can start that off. Um, a lot of it came from the fact that we are so quick to um, define oh. Max, we lost you. We lost you Clearly briefly. that's not how that works. We lost you briefly, Max. Oh, no. You're all right. You're back I'm on. I'm making a great point. I said a lot of great things. I don't know if I can remember them. No. <laughs> Um, a lot of it comes from the fact that during uh, like a concentric movement or eccentric movement, we're so quick to categorize and define them. Yet during an isometric, we just clump them together. And I don't know why we did that. We just say, oh, that's an isometric. And we don't take into account the position they're in, how many joints are, being, are involved, the muscle length, the intent of it, and the duration of it, just like we would consider a squat for, I say, 15 reps with a slow tempo versus a speed squat for two reps with a fast intent. Um, and a lot of that, I was reading Super Training and some of Verkashansky's work, and he had mentioned some aspects of how they had different isometrics programs based on the intent and duration. And that got me to thinking, and Matt and I started communicating. We're like, we need to make this big tree at the beginning of it so we can actually list them all out so people can really see that, you know, someone who might be injured, you don't want to do maximal intent isometrics but you can still get benefit possibly out of a long length submaximal isometric yeah. for a longer duration because that's going to help increase fascicle lengths um it could increase or better uh fiber alignment and some of the tendon integrity so someone might initially say oh isometrics are stupid for someone who's hurt but you're like hey actually it's great because they can work out a range of motion that maybe would be too dangerous otherwise kind of like some of the frc stuff that's going on now um functional range conditioning you see people doing long length isometrics where they're improving either it's the neurologic, neurological control as well as some of that end range motion strength and stability. Yeah, I, I think the, the tree came, uh, like we talked about earlier, it was that flood of emails about PAP or it's like so many people are seeing the isometrics as, oh, this high intensity neural prep or they're seeing it as as it's shown kind of in the triphasic setting where it's like, oh, it's a, it's a max hold for this amount of time for your sets, reps, whatever it is. But we took the approach and, and having seen many different aspects of how you can utilize it, like what Max is saying for your either return to play or your, your injured athletes. And I think that's formed the foundation of even the, the glute layering model that we're implementing for that neurological motor cortex learning um, improvement or enhancement of a specific muscle. So let's say you have an ACL and you're trying to get that quad back. Like you can use that 15 to 20 minutes yeah. of isometric, lightly isometric. Obviously you're not doing a maximum 15 minute hold or an ISO, but you can set them at a position that they can tolerate. And then you're going to enhance that motor cortex firing. So then when you go to any of your multi-joint rehab, things like that, you're already firing 
that muscle and you're not sitting there wasting time trying to get that. And then you can mix in your occlusion work, things like that. If you're utilizing those aspects, Mm. um, to enhance the muscle itself, but then you've covered both nervous system as well as the muscular component. And then, and then the other piece, I mean, that's so widely missed for the duration is energy system development at a tissue level. So we're looking at whether it's the more of the oxidative aerobic piece where we're going light enough and a long duration for that, maybe five minutes, but you're allowing blood flow into that tissue. So now you're just requiring that actin myosin to fire for that amount of time, but you're still allowing that muscle to um, clear that metabolic accumulation versus as you increase that intensity. Um, obviously, we're going to drop down. This is like, like the 30-second holds that we talk about, but you can drive occlusion and now a rapid spike in that accumulation of metabolites, and now you're going to drive that different energy system. So that muscle's now tolerance to that accumulation. And then that's how we've implemented the GPP model for us is to address both aerobic um, and glycolytic at the tissue and like full energy system uh, spectrum. Yeah, I want to get a little more into that part because uh, you, you boys are answering questions I already have, but I still kind of like want to get a little more into those pieces. So that's basically chapter two in terms of the the different types of isometrics into section three or chapter three, or chapter three section three, as you boys have it, uh, physiology of isometrics. And, and Matt, you sort of covered it a bit there now in terms of like the metabolite sort of adaptations. But in section three, you have uh, bits on occlusion, blood pressure adaptations, metabolic accumulation, and then this idea of the local chemoreceptors versus the systemic chemoreceptors. And, and a point that was made in the book, and it's only when I went through making notes last night, I was like, Huh, I actually kind of missed that the first time I went through. Uh, this idea that during the isometric contraction, there's obviously a buildup of an acidic environment. And then what's happening is you're having to go into respiratory alkalosis because you're in a hyperventilation. So, like, the systemic part of the body is in alkalosis, while the contracted muscle is in an uh, acidic environment. And then when you let that contraction go, now you're getting all the full of those metabolites systemically. And then it's like you get this sort of second rebound of hyperventilation so maybe just speak about like why that might be a good adaptation to see yeah so first off i don't remember the study at the top of my head i sent it to matt as well it was awesome how they depicted if they had ph levels um there's a little bit of an older study and must have gone fairly either unread or just not passed through as some of the other studies have been um and then for myself I think, hey, I think I've got pulled up. Is it control of blood gas and acid-based status during isometric exercise in humans, 1988? Yeah, if you scroll down, it'll have the graphs on it, the breathing rates, and it has the, dat, the dotted line on it where it says release of contraction. Should be like my... I don't have the... the I've just got the references pulled up from, from like, section four or section mm-hmm. three. What I like to do is I can put yeah. that... Ref- I can put that reference into the show notes anyway yeah and the point of it is that when we're doing a lot of these maximal effort movements um whether it is isometric or not we're going to have to have systemic clearance and it's not just going to be localized demand on the muscle tissue itself what that does and introduces at a very i guess i don't call it a safe level but introductory level say someone's coming back from rehab mm-hmm. who their system isn't as ready as it could be to handle clearance of, of, say, hydrogen ions, lactate, and whatnot, metabolites. 
And now we can localize the tissue in a way that we have local increase in hydrogen and lactate. Then the system itself can be responsible for clearing it, but we're not putting it under the same demand, say, a back squat would be, where you have probably 10x number of contracting muscles. Right? If we just have a localized, say, a long length, where you have a straight leg, hamstring kind of hip bridge, you're just occluding it um, with an isometric contraction and an intensity above 75%. This individual is now, it's their, one of the first times doing it, they had been basically on the shelf for six months because of whatever injury. Um, that then metabolite is released once the contraction is there, and the system has to then deal with it and learn how to right, excrete it in a way, <coughs> excuse me, ah, uh, in a way with, uh, <laughs> I think it's some water, I'm dying, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, go get water. Uh, this, 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 uh, this basically, is long story short, uh, <laughs> long story short, it allows them to have introductory levels of acidosis in the system without a huge systemic response, which might cascade an HPA axis response of a larger systemic disturbance that they might not be ready to handle. Gotcha. Hey, go get your water. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I would agree with everything Max is saying. I think I think the, the key takeaway out of all that is just that it, it's a way, especially for your athletes returning to whether it be the weight room, returning to practice, returning to play, mm. um, to introduce that smaller um, response to to it from a from a localized to a systemic standpoint. You good? You surviving? I'm back. Yeah. Did, did you get water? So I did. I had it sitting right over the side. <laughs> like a dog no, bone, like a, like a dog bone, just ran over and licked it and came back. <laughs> Sorry, yes. go go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. No, I I was just saying, I, like the from from a general to specific standpoint, that's that's probably the most basic introductory piece that you can use with an athlete to begin yeah. building them back towards um, whatever performance aspects you're looking at improving. Would you ever just use them with a beginner, like you know, even someone coming back from an injury? Yeah. 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 We'll saying. use um we'll use some longer duration, even like in the first um first few weeks of training, like even like the five to up to fifteen, twenty minutes, like like glute layering that we were talking about for the neural changes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we'll also look at like we try and keep it under thirty percent of a load, but we'll do like a dumbbell bench for five minutes straight and and Oh, it's like you're holding 10 to 15 pounds and it's miserable. Like if you like, that's the longest five minutes of your life. But when we, what we saw is after about two to three weeks, even doing that once a week, we saw changes in our athletes posture. Yeah. So by choose, by selecting the right exercises, getting them to into an appropriate position, um, we saw changes in that regard too. So it's like, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone there. What, 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 what I think do you, one of the things, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. My fault, my apologies. No, no, go ahead. Is that it's not just at the tissue level of the muscle, but there's also tendon adaptations as well. Mm. Yeah. Right? Because you have that contraction, which is causing strain on the tendon, um, and it's not in a dynamic fashion where now the tendon itself is the one being stretched the whole time on like the muscle, which might be changing lengths, and the tendon would be compliant in a dynamic kind of like a squat. But we're putting that strain on the tendon, and it's actually shown to increase um, fiber alignment in a more, I guess, efficient pattern. It doesn't necessarily increase the thickness as much. Tendons don't adapt um, thickness-wise like muscles do. But it increases the, uh, I guess, the efficiency of the alignment 
and the integrity of the tendon in general, which is really important if you have a low-level athlete or someone who's been hurt, someone to be introduced because a lot of what we do, typically in traditional sense, right, we're like, oh, let's maybe only do a couple of ground contacts here and there. But why are we only doing that? Because of the inefficient tendons or the like, lack of integrity in them. So by coupling in isometrics, you might be able to expedite some of that process. Just in terms of those long-duration isos or sort of almost quasi-isometrics, like Dan Victor speaks about them, and I know like Jay Schroeder's done them, and you know the stuff with DB Hammer. Like, what what do you guys think is going on there? Like, like is it obviously there's something like there's a reduced threat to the brain by doing those types of exercises that that's obviously allowing athletes to be able to express more force. Or what what do you guys think is is going on there? Like from um, an adaptation standpoint, like what do you hypothesize? So from uh. From what I know about the Schroeder standpoint, he typically does his in long length positions, mm. right? Whether it's the bottom position of a squat, bottom position of a push-up hold. And what you actually see there is you see greater carryover in strength throughout the entire range of motion as well as increases in fascicle length. So what initially you might see as an isometric joint angle specific movement actually has much greater carryover to dynamic movements and throughout multiple joint ranges of motion. So when you're doing that with an introductory, an introductory level athlete or someone that's first part of a GPP phase, it doesn't just increase stability and some of the local, um, I guess, tissue uh, oxidative abilities we're doing it that long. It also increases its strength throughout that range of motion, which is setting the base for when you go and do your squats, whatever's next, because it is uh, having that dynamic carry carryover that you might not see with mm. a short length isometric of someone doing like a high position isometric hold out of a squat with their knee angle at like 125. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a huge point and, it, and it's kind of what we covered in the, the PAP originally talking about going from general to specific. Like if you have uh, a lower level introductory athlete you can implement your PAP at that low position, get them strong there, because we understand that strength, particularly, let's say your back squat, your one RM, your max, is only your max at the weakest point. Weakest point yeah. It's like Max had a great post, um, what was it? It was probably maybe two weeks ago, where it was like you did a full um, depth back squat, and then you went to like a, it was a, it was a higher range, but he increased his load by, what, 200 pounds? So, yeah, it was like a 120-pound jump, and it was like, what am I doing if I'm limiting myself by 120 pounds over a joint range of motion that I actually care about in sport just because I can't get a damn hole of a back squat? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that I think the, the long duration ISOs can serve as, as the foundation for even like pre-PAP to, uh, to provide strength and those longer fascicles. But then on the nervous system side of things too, um, there's a really cool article and I know I always reference it now, but it's it's basically showing that like 15 to 20 minutes of an ISO, like continued, um, continued, uh, they do an ISO, um, it like tripled the size of the motor cortex firing in the matter of a week. So what they're doing now is, is, and this for like here, for me, return to play guys, we're mixing that into our training programs to try and drive appropriate fire patterns that, that we're trying to correct or maybe potentially range of motion issues. So in that lengthened position, and then they even showed that, so they did like a, they call it the fire hydrant, but it's basically a glute firing in all three planes. 
and then they just statically held that for 20 minutes and it's a brutal study like that's terrible to do like and then they're like if you can do it with a band do it with a band and i was like i'm going like two minutes and i'm fried but what they showed is that that motor cortex firing the increase didn't just apply to the um the fire hydrant they had them get up and do like bridges they had them do um some different jumping activities i think it was it was some like full kinetic chain and that increased firing was still occurring so it's not just specific to the one exercise that you're doing that cortex that actual nervous system like motor learning applies then to other movements and that's that's the other big piece from the the long duration along with the strength like most general basic piece getting someone stronger in certain positions so is, is that a, is that a study you're, you're discussing there so like explain to me like what so like are these guys come back from injury how many subjects what exactly were they doing i know you said 20 minutes there or something like yeah so what they did it was healthy people um i'd have to look at it exactly for the numbers things like that but what they did um they did um a banded fire hydrant if they could do it and they did it 20 minutes in duration each leg just holding it holding statically just holding it's terrible like and that's what we've used to build like the glute layering model, the longer duration isometrics or that quad that I was mentioning earlier with our yeah, ACL yeah. return to play. And it's, it's terrible, but then we'll start to see changes and we're starting to measure it on our Dari here. We've got the movement screen, um, like the eight camera system. And, and we've started to see even a matter of two weeks changes in performance. Now, obviously our athletes are getting stronger, better. They've got two more weeks of return to play under their belt. But it's like from a movement standpoint, it's saying that they're starting to achieve more hip extension. They're starting to achieve better triple extension, things along those lines, just from mixing in some of those isometrics to what they were already doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a question I want to ask you boys then too is from Section 3, you talk about the catecholamine release and you say that isometrics have a quite quite a different impact on catecholamine release versus eccentric and concentric contractions. And there actually was a quote in there from a study you have, and it's basically that the pattern of plasma catecholamine release suggests that the hemodynamic reaction during sustained voluntary static contractions could be related to sympathetic activation elicited by a reflex mechanism. So wh- why 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 would you guys believe that an, uh, like an, a more enhanced catecholamine release could be something that could be beneficial to performance? Um, twofold. One, catecholamines are obviously responsible for mobilizing energetics, right? Uh, basically gets the system ready, fight or flight kind of deal. Mm. Um, and then secondly, right, if you're doing that for post-activation potentiation, that's you want to be in a sympathetic state when you're training. Yeah. Right? A parasympathetic state gets such a large hype, but people don't realize that the sympathetic state is important for when mm-hmm. you're going to lift heavy things. Um, and then also if you're thinking about like a return to play aspect, an individual who has been out for say eight, four weeks, whatever, hasn't had that same sympathetic response yeah. that they were traditionally used to having, right? So if we can get them then to get back to some of that sympathetic drive, that's important for sport. I'm not saying if someone's overtrained, let's just dump isometrics on them and sympathetically cascade them down one hell of a mm-hmm. uh, downward spiral, right? That's not, that's not what you want to do, and you don't want to throw off the HPA axis like that. Um, but if someone is used to doing that, right, we don't want them to be in this eight weeks of non-sympathetic activity because they got to get back to play. And part of being ready for play is getting their system from a neural standpoint, able to mobilize energies. 
So it's a controlled manner in which you can do that. Obviously, there's a large dumping of it. So like buyer beware kind of thing. Don't do super long isometrics with a really intense workout because you're just dumping massive <laughs> sympathetic response on an individual. And if you're not aware of like how demanding isometric is because the time under tension is so crazy long mm. compared to any other movement that we do, because it's literally 45 seconds of a contraction. It's not like two down, two up, kind of take a breath with a bar on your back, two down, two up. It is like 45 seconds of contraction, right? Okay, I know that's going to have a large sympathetic response. Now that might make one of two things. A, I reduced some of the intent for my workout that day. And B, I really make sure after the workout, the person gets back into a parasympathetic state for recovery. Yeah, I think, I think Max hit it on the head there. It's I think the, the parasympathetic gets such a strong, and, it, and it's important, like we tell our athletes all the time that rest is absolutely a weapon, and we, like that parasympathetic response is where our athletes are going to actually realize the adaptations that we've provided, the rest and digest, but you're not wanting a, a guy to walk up to a bar and like that 700-pound deadlift that we used in, in the first chapter, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm just I'm rest and digest mode right now, yeah. and it's like, no, yeah, you have, yeah, your yeah. body has to be ready for that fight or flight, so... But I think the, the point about the time under tension, too, is huge as far as in dynamic actions. I mean, you're moving along, like you're moving, you're taking rest times, things along those lines versus that isometric is a continued response. And, and whether, I mean, it's obviously at the same length, uh, but you're going to see a greater response just from that time under tension. How, how do this question that just came to my mind, actually is in my notes, but it was something I meant to ask you. How, how are you guys, like, and I know you, you speak about how you're programming isometrics using the APRE, which we'll talk about later, but how are you sort of monitoring the total work done in an isometric? Because I suppose work by definition is force times distance, but there is no there is no distance in an ISO, but yet there is work being clearly done, like, I mean, even just doing. So, like, how are you guys gauging that? Because it really is hard to know if someone is, like, going as hard as they possibly could. Uh, uh, I suppose obviously you have a force plate or something like that, but like maybe someone who's not who doesn't have those budgets, have you any ideas? Yeah, um, two things. One, obviously we don't know. The we can't quantify without a force plate. You just can't. I'm not going to BS you and say, oh, I can 100% tell you that. It's <laughs> no, like we don't know. So let's get a, get that off the table. You win on that one. Point for you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> all, I'm telling you, all, all my athletes give 100%. How do you know? Because I hold a gun to their head every day. You see, <laughs> just go in and see me with a gun. With a gun. 17, um, 18, 19. You've got another 20, 26 seconds left, motherfucker. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of it has to do with explaining the reason why you're doing it so they understand the intent behind it. Yeah. And that's going to be the biggest uh, motivating factor for them. If they know that, okay, all out two seconds because this is going to carry over to my jump, that's probably the best way to do it. Mm. Um, maybe your method might get better results than mine, but uh, it's working so far. Here. It's working so far. <laughs> We've only lost two athletes so far. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 that, and that was only with one bullet, so, you know, it was, uh, it was two birds. Oh, wow, seven. there you go. <laughs> Good lord! No, I I think the the education of your athletes is so critical uh, nowadays because programming has advanced so much, mm. and and we're trying to get more and more done in the time that we have available now. And 
And strength and conditioning is now sport performance where we're considering at such a greater depth of, of the adaptations or the, the desired outcomes that we're looking for. And then we're trying to figure out the best way to, to fit that into our program. So getting your athletes to understand um, what the goal is, why this matters, why. And I know we, we talk about this a lot in the first book, but the, the maximal intent is so critical for what you're doing, whether it's, it's a heavy um, back squat where you're looking like getting – slower speeds, things like that, but it's still move that bar as fast as you can. Or if it's a lighter or lighter weight and they're moving that at the same speed, well, what adaptation, unless you're looking for a blood flow recovery day, like you're probably not getting much out of that from a neural drive standpoint. Yeah. So I think getting your athletes to, to understand what's going on there, um, for the PAP, uh, like if you're doing a, a, an overcoming, um, ISO, like, yeah, without a force plate, you're just, you're not going to know. Um, but then throughout the workout itself, I've moved more. I mean, we'll use a buzzer. Um, and when I was in Denver over the loudspeaker, things like that. So every ISO for a day, if we were in that phase or if we were doing it was X amount of time. So it never changed. So our, our guys knew from buzzer to buzzer, they were doing this ISO. And then we programmed, um, again, depending on the phase that we're in, um, different percentages for them so they knew what load they were doing for and at that point it was more yielding but it was at least like i can see who is isometrically controlling what load and then if it's too easy i can bump them up make a note of that on their sheet uh but again yeah there, i without a force plate with with the overcoming there's no way to to tell unless you've got a guy unless you know the weight of your rack and you got mm. a guy picking it up then you're mm. good to go but yeah yeah um, without that happening, it's it's pretty difficult to tell. Yeah, no, it's good to know. Still good to know. So, section four, then, boys, really good section. You speak about the structural, metabolic, and neural adaptations. Uh, so, with the structural ones, hypertrophy was actually when I when I was just going through, I was like, oh, hypertrophy, and, and most people think isometrics, and it's like, mm, is that correct? And then you know, you guys sort of spoke about you know some of the adaptations that can happen at le- at the more lengthened positions in terms of hypertrophy. Um, which I'll get your boys to touch on now, but you spoke then about fascicle length, which is something that I've read up an awful lot on lately, because just through my masters, um, there was a lot to do with fascicle length and sprinting, and obviously you know that faster sprinters seem to have longer fascicle lengths, and it depends then on what sort of muscle you're talking about, like hamstrings seem to have more fibers of longer fascicle length, because it's more velocity-based muscle than a force-producing muscle than some of the penate fiber muscles, like maybe your glutes or the, the vastus of the quads. Uh, tendon stiffness, which is a very good topic you lads covered, uh, what I really liked about that was you lads, you know, the two years were saying that tendon stiffness doesn't necessarily equate to more magnitude or higher jump with the rate of force development, which we'll touch on. So maybe just getting into those structural adaptations, hypertrophy, like so isometrics, what's what's going on with that? I can get it. Um, yeah, so long muscle lengths is typically where you see the greatest hypertrophy. Um, it kind of goes back to like the little Jay Schroeder comment we have. Why do you think those long isometrics work for some people. If you're in a long muscle length, you're going to have some of the general preparation um, mm, mm. kind of structural changes you expect to see in a program. You'll see hypertrophy. Uh, you're going to see possibly increases in fascicle length like you alluded to earlier. And I think what's happening there is the fact that some of these isometrics, again, it depends how they're done, right? If you have the yielding versus overcoming, because the yielding isometric is very much like a quasi-isometric. Quasi you're uh, kind of going up and down, whether it's a pseudo concentric, eccentric kind of bopping up and down, basically right, quasi 
is why it's called that. And the overcoming aspect is when you're pressing into like a pin and a movable object. And a lot of that has to do with when you're in such a long muscle length or the number of myosin and actin heads that are acting on each other, right? If you're really shortened, if I'm doing visualization with my hand, visualization with my hands Sorry. right here for those who are, you can't see. <laughs> uh, they're overlapped with each other, but when you spread out, right, they're obviously more exposed to it. And when you get to those extreme muscle lengths, it's putting a greater demand on it. Why that creates more hypertrophy, I couldn't tell you. Have uh, you, is there, is there research like literature on that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So in the papers we referenced the, the study looked at short muscle length versus long muscle long length, muscle length. Isometric. isometric. And it uh, highlighted that the long isometrics at a long muscle uh, muscle length, wow, well, spitting over my tongue, um, induces greater hypertrophy mm. than the short ones. Now, I'm not saying it's inducing greater hypertrophy than Dynamic like motion. a consensus barbell yeah. curl, but in terms of isometrics, the long muscle length isometric induces more hypertrophy than... Um, the short ones, and if you don't believe me, right, you can look at a lot of gymnasts, and those guys are absolutely stacked, and a lot of their positions. Yeah. Well, I are think they're. I remember Christian Thibodeau, and um, he, uh, I know Christian well, and when he did his last seminar here in Dublin, what was that in October 2015? He was talking about the mechanisms for hypertrophy, and like, and I thought he was just going to say the usual, um, Brad Schoenfeld, three, you know, the mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and overall muscle damage. But then he went on to talk about stretch. And that stretch, yeah, stretch. that stretch seems to upregulate mTOR, and we know mTOR it definitely has some sort of mechanism then in the protein synthesis mechanism then of muscle hypertrophy. So yeah, stretch seems to be something. And I know John Meadows, who obviously is a well-known bodybuilder, he's a big fan of putting stretch into as well. So uh, yeah, they're definitely. So that's kind of what came to my mind when I saw the isos and hypertrophy. And then like when you boys said it was like at a lengthens level, lengthens position, it was like that kind of makes sense. So again, going back to the sort of quasi isometric. Yeah, I think you hit it spot on. I agree with you. You you yes. had a better answer than me. <laughs> uh, More concise. Yeah, to the point. That's that, that's if you can understand me. I know I know like a lot of Americans are like, what the fuck did he just say? He speaks so fast. Because it's because I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> so f- fascicle length. Yeah. So I, I there's work I know from Angus Ross on some eccentric work. Uh, I'm not too sure if he's got isometric work in that, but maybe just like isometrics and classical length and, and why that might be important and then get into the tendon stiffness which i found was very uh, interesting in terms of the adaptations there um and with the tendon stiffness what i liked was that you you said in the book too that it's not so much hypertrophy to the tendon as it's more it's more change to the architecture of the tendon that seems to happen so maybe just get into classical length and tendon stiffness so i mean if, if matt wants to take it or max whichever one of you boys want to go yeah, I mean, um, I think I think the biggest thing with that tendon stiffness, too, I think we covered it earlier, is going to be that ability to transfer force throughout the entire system. Like, I, I know that muscles, and I know, I know we've kind of, we always seem to bounce back and forth, but muscles seem to get a lot of, of, the, of the attention through the training that we're doing, things along mm-hmm. those lines. But addressing that tendon stiffness when that athlete lands the ground is is it the the bouncy ball coming off or is it like the silly putty that hits the ground and absorbs all that force and there's no stiffness to it right yeah so and fortunate enough to work with some high level athletes that you you see some of these guys and it's incredible what they can do as far as transferring that force yeah um so looking into um the 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 entire system and how again that isometric load and i know earlier when we were talking about long duration i said tissue but 
it's it's absolutely both like what Max pointed out and covering that entire um, sequencing event um, to ensure that I can through whether it be Achilles or through fascial or whatever it is transfer that line of force in the most appropriate efficient and powerful manner in that short amount of time that's available especially in your higher level athletes that who's I mean the easiest ones the running where their foot's in contact with the ground for so little time that if they don't have that if they can't pre-activate in that isometrically loaded position and their muscles can't absorb that force with that stiffness of that tendon you're going to start bleeding power throughout that entire um that entire movement and then from there you're going to lose your power you're going to lose your speed or whatever mm. action that you're trying to complete and also so from, from, from a from, from an injury standpoint i think you, you also touched on saying that then if the muscle has to take on more of that sort of force and which can also lead then to strains in the muscle itself yeah absolutely like it yeah if you're like if you're imbalanced and and, and it's that way with almost anything if, if you're imbalanced one of the aspects is having to take on the brunt of something else yeah. and so and again like what the exact balance is for each individual based on their length tension if somebody figures that out let me know but it's i mean we can mess around with and that's kind of the graph that you mentioned is seeing where they're at as far as a a static jump versus a counter movement mm-hmm. things along those lines start to see the difference when they're utilizing stretch shortening cycle versus not and then you can start to see all right if an athlete's more likely to sustain basically a muscular or a tendon style um injury and then from there you can address your programming um to to try and quote unquote correct that to the best of your ability but again like there's no right or wrong answer there's no exactly like this is the cutoff like i've messed around with it enough that i kind of think i have an idea but again it's that there's no like oh this is it you know just 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 before you hop on there max uh matt that's so interesting that you just said that looking at that jump profile may give you an indication into maybe injury risk potential because i've only been thinking more of it more of just performance but the reason why that's so interesting to me now is that i don't i won't say his name because i i like the, the study's not out yet, so I don't want to like ruin his thunder. But I know somebody who's doing a study on a jump profile, looking at different ju- jump profiles in terms of non-counter movement, counter movement, drop jump, and he's trying to correlate into injury risks. And due to like that, due to like looking at you know if someone more, I suppose the balance between the muscle attendant unit and you know the concept of it. Yeah, more, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. I'd be really interested to see those results actually, kind of see if it agrees with. I mean, obviously, I'm not in the research setting. I'm in a very, like, oh, like, this this happened today, but it was also this mm, happened, this mm. happened, this happened to the athlete. So it's like, you, you, I mean, you're dealing with so many factors that it's hard to pinpoint it down Absolutely. to, okay, like, this can correlate with this. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Um, I just read an interesting study, interesting study about two weeks ago looking at drop jumps, or death jumps, whatever people call them now, because no one can agree on a term that thanks uh, our inability for Russian translations. Um, but they were looking at tendon stiffness and their ability to have a sh- reduced ground contact time. And I don't know the authors of the study, and I thought it was a wonderful study, but one thing I noticed was if you looked at what would be the fast stretch shortening cycle threshold, roughly 
0.3 seconds or 0.25, um, kind of depending where you want to go with. The correlation was much, much stronger because they included people with like 0.5 and 0.6. Mm. And if you understand physiologically, that's not even the same mechanism because you're going to have a traditional yielding to then a conversion of concentric on those kind of ground contact times versus a rapid one. And I was looking at Achilles tendon stiffness and those who had stiffer Achilles tendons had um, better ability to have a quicker ground contact time. And I read another study just yesterday looking at something very similar and it was repeated hops. And as the person did repeated hops, the amount of fascicle length that changed in the muscle um, became less and less and the more changed in the tendon. So again, the muscle acted in a quasi-isometric state as they kind of build a, built up momentum hopping. And then the tendon, this is also a kind of misnomer, it does act as a spring, right? Mm-hmm. But it's finding that happy medium. So I don't want someone to be stiff as hell in their tendon, but I also don't want them to be a wet noodle. Yeah. Right? It's like somewhere in between. And traditionally, with a lot of our weightlifting we do, we do a lot of tendon non, I'm sorry, non-tendon training, right? It's a lot of uh, long range of motion, a lot of fascicle length, um, and the tendon isn't acting as a transmitter. And so some of the, one of the papers we pointed out was Kubo's study, and it looked at isometric squats and its effects on the counter movement and squat jump ratio. And it showed that it actually didn't increase the counter movement jump at all, but it increased the squat jump. And so the ratio between them became tighter. Yeah. And so it's not going to increase necessarily the magnitude of your jumping ability. Yeah, That's yeah. not the point of it. But it's increasing the rate, rate yeah. at which you could do it. Uh, we've tested, I've tested some very high-level athletes. I can't name them. And one of the best in the world we tested for their given sport, which required um, they're a fighter. And so you can't, right, you can't load. Otherwise, you give a tell. And their squat jump and camera movement jump were the same height. Mm. And you think about it, well, that makes sense because if you load to uh, sweep on someone, they know you're coming. And so they can't do a large eccentric loading to take up muscle slack for their sports. They've adapted right, a morphological, functional specialization for that sport itself. One, one caveat to that, though, is that with the athletes that I tested previously, I had some athletes who where their non-counter and counter move were the same. And I can safely tell you that these were not good athletes. Like, like they're so like yeah. they're 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 like both their both their jumps were just shit, and it, it was more yeah, it, yeah, it, totally. it, it was more so their their counter movement was the same as their non counter because because they were so discoordinated like when when they went to do a counter movement they basically went down and were so weak they just basically stopped and <laughs> and, and then and then did another non counter so like the reason I'm saying this is like somebody could look at this data and go oh look they're almost the same they must be very stiff in their tendons this is good for rate of force level. it's like no they're just shit athletes so if you don't have any force at all it doesn't matter what your rate of force development is absolutely that's something I tell people like if you have a 40 inch jump your counter movement and your squat jumps 30 inches guess what that guy who has a 28 counter movement jump and a 28 squat jump you still jump higher than him yeah right yeah. you just get a bigger pie to pull from. Yeah, exactly. So people shouldn't get so caught up either in just trying to be a rate of force development, rate of force development. You know, like what force are you developing? You don't have any. Yeah. Uh, maybe you should work on that part first. Uh, so just move, move no, on. I think, oh, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, Matt. 
I, w- I was just going to say, like, w- Max kind of got into it with the sport-specific thing, and, I, and we talk about it in the book briefly, but the magnitude of that tendon stiffness is important, too. Yeah. So comparing, like, your distance runner, like we talk about, compared to your sprinter. Very good, like, yeah. As that force increases, that tendon stiffness for that sprinter is going to have to withstand at a yeah. much higher output than the than the repeated, obviously, uh, distance runner. So I think that's just another thing too. And Max brought it up perfectly with the, with the, the fighter that he's got is that understanding the requirements of your sport yeah. and then understanding the, the adaptations that you're going to achieve through these different mechanisms is really what this is all about. And then starting to piece those together and then ending at whether it's a, a fight date, whether it's a race date, whether, whatever it is or beginning of the season for a team-based sport, it's like, okay, we've maxed out on all of these aspects so that you can go from a physical standpoint go perform at the highest level that you have now whether in a team sport that means your guy can catch the ball or not that's really not up to you but it's just understanding what is going to get us there and what's required that that is the most important thing for us the, and I think in the book you, you call that the difference between is a strain and um, magnitude adaptation, is it? So like the endurance runner, is, is that what it was? Strain, like more. Yeah, it's, yeah, strain and magnitude. Yeah, so strain or is like intensity. more. Yes, yeah, is more like lower volume, uh, longer like so like distance running versus like magnitude sprint, and they give you different tendon property adaptations. So yeah, that, that that's a key mm-hmm. point. And in fairness, throughout the book, you, you you know you guys mention a lot of times like really be thinking that your adaptations have to be specific to the athlete always be asking like is this specific to to this specific individual whether whether you're considering the adaptation to the actual structure of a tendon or the joint angles you're training that so that was something that you guys did bring to light an awful lot during the book which is very good so guys moving on from there uh one part of the book that really caught my attention as i was going through was this concept of um the brain and reduce in re- reduction in pain perception. So maybe just get into that. And, and it was a really, really, you know, one of the best parts of the book I thought in terms of obviously coaches listen to this, but we all have athletes who are rehabbing or coming back from injury. And um, so it kind of gave an extra dimension or a sort of another tool in the toolbox to potentially use to, to help an athlete train. So maybe speak about that brain plasticity and brain and reduction in pain with isometrics. Yeah. Pain is, Obviously, um, if you ever played a sport, you know it's common. And the mechanism of the pain is very elusive. We don't really know why someone hurts, right? Because it's a brain response. It's not somehow the muscle like, causing pain. It is a neurological phenomenon, which we have yet to 100% fully understand. Yeah. And I think one of the aspects that occurs, and it's highlighted in the book as well, some of the studies in there, shows that performing isometrics can actually reduce some of the localized pain, um, a kind of local analgesic effect on that tissue. And what that then allows the coach is twofold. One, you're possibly re-educating that individual to not have pain in it. There are a lot of papers and sh- showing that, you know, disc herniations may exist, but there's no correlation between pain and disc herniations. And same yeah. with, like, labral tears. And a lot of that... Um, kind of structural disruption we see, it could be a brain response. And so re-educating the area as to, um, with isometrics, because the contraction time is so long, you have that feed forward and feedback loop going on with the stretch itself, on depending on what length you do it at, and then the feedback, afferent and efferent between the muscle and the brain, could be some of the reasons why you get these analgesic effects 
And ultimately, it's the reason why you see isometrics used so heavily in like patellar tendinopathy rehabs and mm. stuff, right? Because you do have some structural changes, but obviously success leaves clues. And it could be remapping of the brain's perception of that area and understanding, hey, it's not painful. Or why is that pain response occurring? Um, maybe it helps kind of sift that out a little bit. So it's not necessarily receiving the same input, like a ghost pain reception that you might get sometimes from an area that's giving out some of the afferent signals, despite the fact there isn't really pain there. Yeah, no, I think, I think that pain reduction is critical. Like we were talking about, we know pain is a part of athletics and we don't know exactly the, the mechanism of, of what's causing it, but it's, if you can get an athlete out of that pain and get them to train through, and, and especially if it's a return to play, um, an increased five or 10 degrees of range of motion pain-free, and then they can train through that for the next 45 minutes. Well, that's going to strengthen that range of motion that they mm. never would have seen. And especially with the isometric, like we know the strength changes that we're going to see are that plus or minus 10 degrees. All right. So even if you bring someone right to their, their threshold, um, like a few degrees, um, before they're going to see pain, you know, that they're going to see a strength change that's beyond that threshold. So if, if they, let's say they have a 90 degree restriction and you put them at right at 90 and hold them there, then you've got the hundred all the way down to the 80 degree strength change. So you're actually getting some strength training without passing their pain threshold mm. into ranges that they don't have available. So that, that an important piece um, in implementing these in, in that and, and really for for anyone like we'll use um, another piece of the brain plasticity um, with specific joint ranges knowing that hey if, if on the field typically here's the the position that we cut from all right and we want we want to make sure that your glute meat is firing so you don't drop in valgus so you don't tear your ACL in a non-contact situation that we can put you in that position and then start to make you stabilize on one leg, start to maybe do slight eccentrics. You can, I mean, you can make anything out of that you want. Uh, and that's that study that we were talking about earlier, where it's, it's that time under tension increases that motor cortex firing. And then you can mix other pieces into that too. Like, um, we've seen improvements. Um, and, and I don't know if there's a paper on this yet, but I'm sure there will be shortly where it's, it's not just one. I mean, it fits the entire body so we'll use it for athlete shoulders so we'll use it with scap training things along those lines like especially like if you're seeing more of that upper trap syndrome okay let's get scaps firing and we'll use time under tension for that and then you can use focal point even so if you focus on an object that increases that motor cortex firing um, so we've mixed that in at certain times like if we're doing an iso we can have our athletes find um, like if they're doing something lying like really basic we'll maybe set a tennis ball in the middle of the room and have all of our athletes look at it the whole time or it's find a spot on the ceiling and they look at that the whole time. Now, again, if you're dealing with a big group, easier said than done for controlling 30 plus athletes to look at a point for maybe a minute or two. Mm. Uh, but it's still other pieces that you can mix in. And, and I don't want to say trick the brain, but it's looking, if we're going to look at overall performance and we're going to say, okay, strength and conditioning isn't just what is your one arm back squat? It's not how strong are you. It's not even just how fast are you. It's how efficient are you in the production of your force? Is your body sequencing, like we talked about with that tendon, appropriately? So we're using that brain plasticity 
to get our athletes, like we were saying earlier, into that hip extension, into um, what we believe is the appropriate firing pattern. Um, so we're trying to cut down on our excessive um, extension through the lumbar and actually start to see hip extension because we know we're actually getting a glute. And instead of relying on maybe that hamstring to do all of that work when our guys are running, I mean, five to 600 high-speed yards every single day. Big time. And kind of moving on, like, or adding to that piece, another really good part of the book I found was page 65, and we're in section 5 now, so the implementations of isometrics, where you spoke about re-educating the maximum voluntary contraction. So I, re- I really like that, again, because somebody coming back from an injury, and John Kiley has a beautiful word. He says, like, uh, injuries leave a legacy. So what he kind of means by that is, like, even subconsciously, you might, like, your brain just might not allow you to maximally contract muscles around a, a previous uh, joint that was injured or, or uh, even, like, if there was an injury to the tissue, you know, even though, like, subconsciously you're not aware of it, but the brain can still be, like, not fully activating all the motor, potential motor units down there. So this sort of idea of, like, using isometric to re-educate maximum voluntary efforts or maximum voluntary contractions and to let the brain know it's safe. And you get the example of, like, the pin the trap bar dead or the pin pulls with the trap bar deadlift or, or hex bar as you guys call it in the book. So like, I found that that was another bit was like, mm, I really like that. I'm going to steal that one. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if there's much to add to that, but if you make that, cause it's kind of just, it's just building yeah. on what, what you spoke about there, Matt, but I don't know if any of you guys think to add to that. I just thought that was really good. I'll throw something really quick in there. I think it's important to remember that the human body is built to survive, not to optimize. Big time. Right. We're not built to be super fast athletic beings, right? We're built to be athletic enough to run away from a bear. We're built to be, uh, we're not built to recover all the way back to normal, but recover enough, right? To where we, that's why bones don't heal perfectly, right? But they heal, Mm. they heal enough to where you can function still and survive, but the body doesn't want to waste energy making you optimal because well, we're, we're, gen- we're gen- generalists humans are out of all the animals are the best generalists that's why we populate every corner what well, corner it's round every part of the globe <laughs> and uh i think that's important to then think about with the maximal intent stuff because a lot of times you think oh he's back to play um but the human body might have subconscious mechanisms like hey screw you body like i know you hurt your knee last time we're just trying to survive man i'm not trying to get you hurt anymore so it never actually passes that threshold to allow for maximal intent, which is why the isometrics in a safe position is a good way to kind of re-stimulate that. It's kind of – I often like uh, – I don't know if you guys heard me on some other podcast lately, but this thing about like all these sports injuries. Now, like of course, there's, there's, it's multifactorial. But one thing I always say like definitely is a big variable is that like sport is a fucking novelty to the human organism. Like organized sports around mm, 100 years less, that's just like – like, uh, from, a, from an evolutionary perspective, your brain's probably going, what are you doing, man? You're not getting sex. You're not getting food. Why, why are we doing this? So, like, basically, like, the tissue, like, the, t- the body's just, like, it's completely novel to it, so it's not prepared for this at all. Like, so, like, I mean, we're still figuring out how to optimally prepare athletes for these fucking completely novel things that have only been around, like, a speck of dust in terms of evolutionary perspective. But, uh, no, I just really found that part was, was excellent. Matt, you have something to say to everything? No, I, I think what you said, I mean, with the with the sport being novelty, it's it's funny, like, you think about that, you as especially some of the more extreme uh, events, like, the, these people are, are pushing themselves to the limit, that sympathetic drive, just like 
if they were running from a bear if, or whatever, trying to, it's pure survival mode, but they're doing it for fun. So it's, it's just your, your body has, you're right. Your body has, I've never thought about it like that, but it's like, yeah, we put ourselves through this and it's, and it's not for survival. We're not looking to reproduce. We're not looking to, um, consume resource, things like that. It's just, it's literally, oh yeah, we're going to go do this and see what we can do. Like, wouldn't it be hilarious? It would be hilarious to go back in time, take someone from the Paleolithic era, bring them to the CrossFit Games, and they'd be like, well, 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 and let's just say they could communicate, what, what, why are they doing this? Are they getting, are they getting food? Are they going to mate after this? No, it's like, they're insane. They're wasting, <laughs> so, they're wasting so much energy. Um, yeah, that's great. So, uh, so a few more little things here. Uh, like just, there was just like little golden nuggets in the book. One that was really good, and it was something that I never really thought about, and it was a really good point. And I actually, I wrote it in red pen. That's how much of a good point it was. Usually I'm just blue pen all the way and it's a bit of black, but I was like, oh, I'm going to put this in red. <laughs> um, so very, we got very technical here in, in the Berkeley department. Uh, but it was this uh, concept of rate of force development and rate of force transmission are different things. And it's very important to know that. So rate of force development being more muscular, rate of force transition being more tenant orientated. Um, and maybe just get into that. And it kind of goes back to this idea, again, I suppose, really of sort of magnitude and rate, but... So rate of force is more to do with the, the rate of force in the muscle, whereas rate of force transmission is, is the tenant's ability to take that rate of force and apply it then onto the bone and, and, and cause motion. So, I mean, one of you guys want to take take that? Because I, I actually never heard it. I never heard rate of force transmission. I never actually really heard. So, you know what I mean? Yeah, it kind of comes – I was reading some papers on it. Obviously, it kind of comes from Bosch a little bit because he piqued their interest in it and it has a little to do with muscle slack and there's some cool papers looking at it. And essentially – the muscle itself will receive the neurological input to develop force prior to the slack being taken up because there is no neural innervation causing a contractile effect in the yeah. tendon, right? So your muscle might begin to develop force and contract. However, if that tendon is not able to transmit the force because it's a wet noodle, right? I know tendons aren't wet noodles. I'll probably get yelled at for that. I understand. Just an the sake example. Hey, this is this is this is my podcast. You can fucking say wet noodle all you want. And if anyone has any issues, <laughs> if anyone has any yeah. if anyone has any issues with it, they can fuck off. <laughs> um, and so, essentially, right, a, a more a stiffer tendon or one that's able to transmit force faster will begin acting on the bone quicker, um, and mm. actually causing that movement as opposed to the need for slack to be taken up with the contraction, then the transmission and tightening of the tendon itself onto the bone, which causes movement. So theoretically, if you had that slack reduced from either a stiffer tendon or a preloaded movement, you'd have the rate of transmission would be quicker, which is obviously what gets expressed in the human body. Yeah. While you have the contractile apparatus might be developing contractile force. I know it's not producing force or anything, but on the tendon itself, it might have a delayed effect. No, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think it goes back to what we were talking earlier about the uh, the stiffness and understanding where your athletes are at relative um, to their muscle and tendon balance. Because it, it's absolutely a play between the two. It's like we talked about if, if the muscles are going to overpower and you don't have that stiffness to absorb, whether it's the really high magnitude or the repeated, that strain like we talked about, then you're going to run into a problem there. Like that tendon's going to get beat up versus mm. if it's the other way, you have that stiffness and then that muscle's getting tugged on because it can't isometrically 
withstand the force that that tendon is capable of doing uh, of of produce or not producing obviously but uh, of of withstanding that muscle eventually is going to take the the blunt uh, uh, force of that repeatedly and you're going to see an issue there so I think I think it's important to note that yeah the the transmission versus development things along those lines and and the entire chain of that system um, but then also the next step is how are, how are we addressing that how are we understanding when one of them is out of out of whack excuse me and then if they if they are what training program are we implementing to address that and i and i think that's really the next step for for coaches is making sure that it's great to to have this knowledge and, and the the understanding the difference but it's the practical piece it's how are you how are you aiding your athletes achieve those goals that that is where i think that we're taking the next steps and seeing the biggest change in and that leads beautifully into my next question was your jump profile to determine what an athlete needs so basically you're you're taking a non-counter movement vertical jump a counter movement vertical jump and comparing both of these scores and, and you were saying from your observation 10 percent. i don't know if that was you max or matt which you were saying you usually like to see less than a 10 percent gap between them yeah so that was that graph is pulled actually from uh the volleyball team that i had in denver so they're jumping based athletes they're already pretty skilled in it um but what i was trying to do is i was trying to take literally just a static jump so pulling majority of that stretch shorting cycle it's not perfect because even then well unless you do them absolutely from from a box things along those lines that no counter movement you're still seeing a little bit of rebound um compared to that counter movement jump and then we tracked it as we trained um different muscle actions so as we were doing more of our force uh production pieces you can see that that graph slowly gets closer and closer together so the the, the gap between the static yeah, and the yeah. counter movement is going to decrease because our athletes from the muscular standpoint are producing higher amounts of force so that their starting strength especially from the isometric getting out of that hole all right, they still have, and like we talked about, the isometrics still addressing tendon stiffness pieces like that, um, but they're not seeing the realization of that in the counter movement necessarily yet. And then as we transition, because we're doing block periodization down that force velocity curve into more power speed, and we'll implement more um, tendon based, um, like more of the plyometric pieces, things like that. It's not only, it's, it's the whole system now fitting in, it, it's the muscle, it's the, the tendon and then the entire sequence through the jump, and then you start to see that athlete, that gap start to increase again. And, and what I've seen, um, and this is, again, like this is based on the three years I had at Denver with those athletes, that my better athletes on the court day in and day out were typically around that 10% range. It'd be, so that's, it'd, I mean, again. It would be interesting to see from a monitoring standpoint, just in terms of readiness, like fatigue, like what those different jumps may tell you from a residual fatigue standpoint. Like if you if you collect the data over a while, like so yeah. just just thinking about that alone. I just want to say this too. When you said block periodization, made me laugh because for whatever reason, I always I, whenever I hear block periodization, I always think like someone saying it to Louis Simmons, and he's just like, no, 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 block periodization, it's dead, it's conjugate. That's just a complete side regression. <laughs> Cause that's because that's because he thinks block is linear. It's like no, they're not they're different. You don't you don't just train one thing. There's like you know there's, there's like primary stimulus and secondary, and there's like residuals, man. Yeah. Anyway, that's no. I think excellent. From, yeah, from the monitoring piece though, 
like we've used, and, and it's hard to get, especially if you have a big team, like things along those lines is every day, but we use some counter movement jump um, for some like auto regulatory methods for our in season teams. Do, do, do you look at, but what I'm saying is, would you like, I'm saying like it'd be good to look at non counter and counter and just, just from, Gotcha. Just, just like and see like and just see like what data comes up and then look over and say like why is like why was that up but that was down and you know see see if there's some sort yeah. of tr- trend that comes out of it you know I've I've done something similar to that and you'll the first thing you know is they're not one to one right one will go up and one yeah that's what I mean yeah will go down and that, that's enough of an indicator that they're uh, independent enough that you should probably be monitoring them. My guess, well, twofold. One is I could have sucked and not had them lined up properly each squat jump, which is a possibility. So I'm not going to take use your air out of it. But assuming that I did a decent job, the contraction times are different, right? So one is probably going to be a heavier demand on early stage rate of force development. Yeah, yeah. Not because of, um, say, the contraction time, the contraction times of squat jumps like 0.35 seconds, but if you have a faster rate of force development, obviously you get into some of the higher level force that you can get in an overall larger impulse, jump height. And then the counter movement jump itself has more dynamics involved. We have eccentrics um, kind of lengthening into the concentric um, rebound. And I would, my guess is one, I like the squat jump better first off because it removes some of the noise you get from the eccentric. I do believe that if you have eccentric muscle damage or you have fatigue, it's going to bring noise into your counter movement jump because, yes, you might have peripheral to fatigue, but if I'm using the counter movement jump to look at uh, central fatigue, a squat jump might be, be-, be best. But if I want to look at peripheral muscular fatigue, the counter movement jump might be a good indicator because you are having to absorb and transmit. And if you do have localized tissue damage, I mean, anyone who's done – Tempo squats realizes that doing a counter movement on the next day sucks, right? <laughs> your, your quads don't want to uh, work with you, and you feel like your snail going down and a snail going up. Um, I'd be curious to see. I haven't done it over a long enough time with enough people to get enough indication of how I'd exactly use it. But I've used something similar with two velocities on a barbell. I've used like a 135 and a 235 because they fall on different ends of the power curve for that individual. And my assumption was that this individual's 135 – is higher than this person's than his 235 one day to the next. It's just suggesting that this guy might be more ready for a higher speed day versus a yeah. maximal strength day. That's, that's my kind of that's my thought. That's my thought too. Yeah. So like if you're looking at the one, if you're looking at say the non counter because it's more to do with rate and let's say that was down, but say the counter movement was wasn't down. So obviously there was more magnitude there and time to express force. Maybe then that day, you know, power like more plyometric speed stuff might be off the table because it's more velocity based. Whereas, you know, you might be able to grind out some more heavier stuff. And that's sort of that. Just saying, like, maybe that gives you a window into that, but could be talking absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of a Charlie Francis method. He used um, the idea of looking at whether or not, you know, are you able to handle a fast or do what you can kind of deal, right? Mm. If you can handle fast today, do fast. If you can't do strength, if you can't do anything at all, go recover. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Hopping in here to the last two questions, um, you got in section six, applied isometric programming, and you speak about uh, APRE. So I had Brian Mann speak about this one. It was funny, dude. It was my first time having Brian Mann on, and it was when Brian was on like a million podcasts all about velocity-based training. 
And I was like, Brian, just to let you know, I don't want to talk about VBT. And he goes, yes. I was like, I actually want you to talk about APRE. And he goes, yes. He was delighted. Because I, I, I found it really, really good. Um, and then I realized he stole it from Super Training. So it was in Super Training. Everything was just back in that book. But uh, so uh, autoregularly progressive resistance exercise. So why did you use APRE for the isometrics? And maybe just getting into this then, speak about how you determine someone's load for it. So the testing and then get into like how you do APRE for isometrics. So the reason behind it was the only way you can really quantify how to progress. Um, I didn't know of any any better way than to say, okay, I'll take a model that already exists, like mm. APRE, um, that is used in a dynamic setting, like a bench press or whatever, and apply it over based on durations of what I'm looking for from an adapt adaptation standpoint. Um, and then from there, it's simply – because right, it's a little bit of a shot in the dark with isometrics. You're not quantifying force. No one's going to say, oh, you lifted that up and down. It's pretty easy. Did that person pick the weight up or not? Um, how fast did they move the weight? We don't get any of those in isometrics. Um, and so it's simply a model presented to say, hey, for like a rehab setting, for a integration setting, I used it on myself actually for a while. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit actually, and it worked well. I also got really sore because isometrics uh, – the bottom position of a bench press. I was stupid. I did it every day. I hurt my. Don't do it like I did. I did it every day for like three weeks, and I hurt my shoulder really bad. Um, really dumb. But I do a lot of stuff <laughs> my own training. But the progression model worked very well in the sense of using time as a uh, monitor of load. Um, and again, it just gives it structure because typically it's guesswork. It's hey, let's hold 135 for seven seconds, and then I don't know what I do tomorrow because. It's isometric. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, hold 145 tomorrow. And it just gives a structure to it, more or less. So I give credit to Brian Mann and Super Training in that book for kind of laying that foundation and then using it to integrate it with an isometric setting. So if you're doing rehab, if you're doing load monitoring, you at least have something you can quantify. So, and then just in terms of the testing, like you were just saying, you just base yourself the safety pins, pick away, and then just if you're doing four, six, or eight seconds, just see how, see if they can easily hold that, and then you just keep going until they get a weight where that's it. Yeah, I would advise start air on the light side. Um, if you could hold it for 10 seconds or 12 seconds, you might want to do that for your eight second mark. And again, that was on self trial and error. And it was more error than trial. Um, <laughs> I had like 295 at the bottom I was holding. And I got up and I was like, I can't feel my – I did it every day for three weeks. Because for some reason I thought in my head I could be better than my human body. Every other person. Did, uh, did, 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 did you <laughs> – Exploratory. Did you, uh, ruin and, your, uh, did you ruin your shorts by any chance? Oh, not again. <laughs> no. Uh, but uh, it – it makes you a lot more um, sore than expected because you are at those long muscle lengths. But it, I found it, I started using it after in a more applied manner as part of my pre-work before I benched. I did it with the bench press. I didn't like doing it with a squat as much because I don't have the NAS to sit in the bottom position of a squat and then dump the weight. Um, I'll be totally honest with you. I think it's better used in a controlled kind of couple joint setting as opposed to a fully dynamic like Please, in God's name, don't do it with an RDL. If you're listening to this, don't do an APRE RDL. You're rolling the dice with that one. Um, but if you're doing it in a like uh, bench press, you're doing it in a GHR, you're doing it 
and something where it's a lot less, uh, a lot more controlled, it's much safer that way. Yeah, yeah. Good disclaimer on the RDL. Yeah, please. I'm, not trying to, I'm sending all those emails to you that we get. <laughs> <laughs> I won't surprise it. Well, last thing uh, in the back, in the very end of the, the book, so in, in section seven, you talk about your ABCs, so uh, the agnus breaking and contraction. So do you want to maybe just get into ABCs and, and why isometrics can help facilitate that? Yeah, I think I think understanding that firing pattern that as um, re regardless and, and when I talk to my athletes, I usually use bicep curl. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's saying that as I'm executing a bicep curl, if my tricep is firing the whole time, especially as I increase my velocities, the rate at which I can complete that bicep curl is going to be decreased. That, mm. that triceps acting like a brake. And so understanding that we have that um, that ABC pattern, that initial firing, and then uh, um, continued firing, and then as we finish, we have that breaking by that tricep. If you can utilize um, isometric training or some of the like the oscillatory pieces, um, so it's um, um, it, it gets made fun of quite a bit, but it's almost like a shake weight at an end range of motion. That's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to get that muscle, that tricep, if we're doing a bicep curl. Um, to rapidly turn on. So we want it to understand like motor control where it's at because your body does that for safety. So we're saying, can we turn that on as late as possible? And when it does turn on, it's going to immediately throw on the brakes prior to that bicep finishing that contraction. So that ABC is bicep firing, tricep slows it down. And then it's the fine movement of the, the bicep finishing that action. And that's going to apply, especially in cyclical movements, so something like running, as our body has to then reverse that action. So the quicker we can throw on the brakes, we get to that isometric force or that isometric stage. Now we have to reverse that and go the opposite direction, and then now it's on the opposite side. If I'm rapidly um, doing a tricep extension and my bicep is slowing that rate down, then we understand that with sports, the rate of force development and transmission being so important through that sequence, um, if I can get to get through that, that first portion producing higher force and then wait to throw on the brakes until the very end because my body is strong enough isometrically to produce that force there and then reverse that action, you're going to see a more rapid turnover in whatever exercise or movement they're doing along with greater force production from your agonist because, or that bicep in the bicep curl example, because it doesn't have the tricep slowing it down, that net torque's going to increase. So, and in the book, you give an example of um, like more sort of hip flexion, hip extension in terms of sprinting. So how, like what, what would that look like in the, in the weight room or if you were training, how exactly does that look? So um, it, it can, We'll, we'll look at specific joints, joint angles, or muscle lengths that are needed. So we'll work um, whether it's an eccentric at the hip flex or hip extension position, but on your hip flexors. All right, so we're working that position. So when we get down to that extended position and when that hip flexor does need to kick on, all right, that would be the hip flexion piece at the beginning of it. Um, but then... At just getting stronger at that 90 degree or whatever position you're working for once you are in that flex, so knee up position in running, for example, um, being strong enough through that posterior side to 
throw on the break. So again, we'll transition. And, and again, block periodization piece, we'll start with our strength and we'll work into these specific joint ranges. But then even in our jumping pieces like that, if we're going to do a French contrast, we'll do pauses. So they land and they stick and absorb everything. So it's that rapid breaking. And then we can do starting strength out of the bottom from there. And then as we progress more into, and this is where we're mixing in muscle actions, pieces like that of the triphasic. And then as we get more into reactive power and speed, we can kind of put all the pieces together mm. and then we'll mix in that oscillatory training um, at that specific, um, whether it be the length and shortened position for that muscle. And you're basically trying to teach it that it's safe here at a high velocity, yeah. because really what you're doing is a rapid eccentric, isometric, uh, concentric motion in that one joint angle so if you can teach that body that because it's doing it for safety right so if you can teach that it's okay to be at a high velocity because your muscles are strong enough to withstand this force and reverse it safely then it's going to be able to do that and and i think it was i can't remember who it was it was a long time ago they showed that the most elite athletes are actually those that relax their antagonists at a higher rate Oh, it was then, like Met Deb or someone not Met. Yes, yes. Yeah, like I, I, I hear that. I hear that said all the time, but I've never seen any. Like if you, uh, the Russians said I it. If the Russians said it, it's got to do them like with more mitochondria and calcium. And I was like, I hear people say it. And I was just like, can someone like, like, is there any evidence for it? I found the study. I swear to God, I was at Iowa State and I was in um like this our library and it had a book it had dust on it and like cobwebs and I think there's like growing mold and whatnot. And I pulled it out and it was foreign research translated in English. It was like the title. I'm like for sports science. And I was like, Ooh. this sounds cool. Why didn't you steal that? Book? And they, 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 uh, they, they, they clearly wouldn't have missed it. Yeah. <laughs> and in it had that study. And it had um, that, that same graph you see of, like, the contraction and the relaxation time and it crosses over. And I was like, it exists. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> was, it a, real. was it real. Was it like a V? Did it have, like, a, you know, Kyle's V? It's a V. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, in that book, though, there are some crazy-ass studies. Ah, uh, sure. Like, Listen, anything, anything Eastern European's fucking crazy. Predicted before the wall came down, the shit. Awesome. Shit that, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. You would love to just be, just go back in time just for a day and just go, wow. Like, all, like, uh, they like. They tried to profile athletes with fingerprints. Oh, man. Oh, one a, of them. Yeah. It was like, based on your fingerprint, you're like aerobically dominant. And I'm like, but I'm sure, not like, sure if that one holds up. Look at <laughs> Does that like, still hold up? <laughs> but you're like, even. gene coding. We're doing fingerprints. But you're like, even look at things like HRV. Like, you know, everyone's like, oh, HRV, like, like, like five, six years ago, oh, HRV, it's ground breaks. Like, yeah, they were doing that back in, like, the 50s and 60s with the astronauts. With the cosmonauts. They invented it. Yeah, yeah. It's mad. EKG, electrocardiogram, is Russian, right? You know, like, a Kortikov sound in our blood pressure. Kortikov is not a, it's not a Western last name. Yeah. <laughs> So, boys, just some wrapping up here. That was fantastic. Uh, just a few little quick round, quick, quick fire round questions. And, uh, well, they're going to be quick questions, but you can be as long as you want in your answers. So I just want to ask about your influences, some lessons you've learned, and then maybe your top resources and advice. And then we'll wrap up then with uh, the old dinner question I'd like to finish on. So with your biggest influences, Matt, we'll start with you. I know Kyle's been one. Is there anyone else you, you, you'd mention there in terms of influences? 
Yeah, so, I mean, Cal, um, Yancey here, he's the director of football as far as strength and conditioning. So that's who I played under at Iowa State, um, tied pretty closely with them. That was my first experience uh, in a weight room, walked in, like knew I wanted to do something um, with the human body. I think I was pre-med at the time and walked into the weight room the first day and, and saw what they did as coaches. And I was like, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do. So that's been that's been a huge uh, factor for me. But then also, I think, for me being fortunate to live in big cities like Minneapolis, Denver, and now Austin, it's, there's so many good professionals around the area, um, that in Denver, I had some, some really high level contacts. Um, Nick Studholm does all that FNOR, the functional mm, neuroorthopedic mm. rehab, um, the, the course there that he has been instrumental in a lot of the, the brain function. Um, and even down here trying to connect with, with whether it's, um, well-known PTs or, or other people around the sports world, because like I said, strength and conditioning isn't just, or applied sports science in my case, isn't just um, the, okay, let's get these athletes as strong as we can. It's finding all of these, uh, the, the new methods available or the new concepts that are being applied and how does it fit into the system that, that we're already implementing. So I think that's the biggest piece of advice is to, to seek out others um, in the field that, I mean, un- understand what you, what they do before you kind of walk in or email them. Don't just cold email somebody and be like, Hey, what do you do? Mm. Like uh, understand what you're getting into. But I, th- I think that the continued communication between, um, whether it be strength and conditioning, applied sports science, even athletic training, um, physical therapy, chiropractic, cause it all fits in to this, um, optimal athlete model that we're trying to create. Um, even though we, we discussed earlier, our bodies have no idea what we're doing with sports cause we're doing it for fun, but like, we're still, our goal is still the same across yeah. all, uh, of these facets. And, and then the other, the other big, um, one for me is Matt Shaw. He's the director out at Denver. Obviously I, I got there when I was 25. Yeah. Just turned 25 and, and got me up to associate director working out there for almost, uh, two and a half years. Um, so taking a risk on a younger guy that had only been a full-time strength coach for about six months with Cal. And, uh, so he was instrumental as far as like the, some of the biomechanics pieces, um, like a lot of the three-dimensional movement that we're implementing now, um, for, I mean, whether it be hip mobility, strength, things along those lines, um, has come kind of stemmed from, from that. So that's kind of. My that, background, how I got into it. That Dan Faft is also in Austin too. Say it again. That, I'm very sure Dan Faft is in Austin. Oh, is he? See, I've only been here. See, we started spring ball like a week after I got here, so my hours on like days that we practice are about 4:45 until about 10 at night. Oh. So I haven't gotten a chance to really experience Austin or figure out what's going on here. I'm still still trying to keep my head above water. I think Aaron Davis is there too, trained at that Evolve. I think he's in Austin too. I'm really sure he is. He'd be friends with Ben House. Ben House is functional medicine in Costa Rica. He's good friends with Pat Davidson. So I'm really sure Aaron Davis is there. He's a, he's a genie. He's you love him. He's a he's an employee sports science with his own uh, his own facility. Like he's got like all like the Moxie unit and all this, and he he does massive. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about maybe messing around with a little bit of Moxie for like return to play things like that, getting a little more specific with our guys. Yeah, I have to reach out to those guys. Yeah. yeah. All right, Schmerzo, influences. Um, Don Chu was a big one of mine. Don Chu let me intern under him 
many years back. The I didn't know who he was. The father of Plyos, the American father of Plyos. I didn't know who he was at all. And my brother was like, hey, I'm at this facility. There's a guy you should intern under. I went in. I'm looking around. Everything has his name on it, all the books. And I was like, oh. <laughs> was he like? Was he like? Was he? Was he like Ron Burgundy? I'm kind of a big deal. The gym smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> Don, I have many leather-bound books. Don's a great dude, unbelievable. Um, still stay in contact with him. And then uh, Chase Phelps at Stanford has been awesome. As long, same with Corey Schlesinger, they uh, have been instrumental in helping me out. And then uh, Josh Beauregard at Iowa State has been extremely supportive. He let me basically intern when I wanted to during my graduate degree. And some people get really um, picky about internships. And he's just like, come when you can, lift weights, teach people how to lift weights. Uh, I'm not going to hold me to his schedule because he knew I had my graduate work going on. And that made me uh, continue, obviously, in that field. But also, it's a very uh, awesome experience because it gave me a lot of autonomy there. Um, when working with him on developing creative ideas, not the programming, that's his baby, but kind of spitballing ideas back and forth was awesome to work with him. So, boys, uh, next question, and just for answers, just just t tell the listeners how, like, so I'll ask the question and just say how old you are, because the next question I'm going to ask is, what have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life? Like, just, just to give a bit of context here, because you guys aren't that old. No, I'm... I'm young and very uh, been lucky to get where I am. I don't, yeah, very happy with it. Um, and the biggest lesson I've learned is do the little things all the time because they don't reveal themselves in any form of materialistic reward at the moment, but they add up at the end of the day. Mm. It's just as simple as that. I don't think I've ever thought having an Instagram page would do me any good. My girlfriend made me make it because she was like, stop talking science to me. And I love her to death. I don't mean to give her a, a crap. It's cuddle time. I don't want any science talk. Pretty much. She's like, honestly, Max, all you do is talk about sports science. And I don't talk to nursing about you all day. I was like, fair enough. Um, you don't need to know about my jump program or my lack of. And uh, so that was awesome. And just kind of having that, you know, building something that is unique to yourself that money itself cannot buy. So when you have built something of your own, others seek it out because they can't throw money at it and develop it on their own. Like because of Instagram, I've gotten met Greg, who I'm now the chief science officer of ExtraGo Technology. We made the G flight. We have a G Sprint. We have the G-Strength 500 coming out. We have an accelerometer coming out. Um, it's going to be really awesome when that stuff gets going. But all because of Instagram. Who knew? What a millennial. <laughs> Matt? Um, so I am I'm 28. Um, so, again, very young. Very, very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in. Uh, and, and, the, and the biggest piece for me, um, besides if you didn't pick up Super Training, if you haven't read it yet, make sure you read it. Because you won't understand the, the first date. <laughs> everything that we talk about is in there. Everything anyone just, talks just, about Just, just one thing one, one thing on Super Training, because I, I have read it, and I only read it. I, I've had it on my bookshelf where I did to know, but I actually read it cover to cover over the, the Christmas just gone. And 
like no doubt it's a great book, but there actually is some really bad referencing in that book. Is in like he's got like references, and I went I went to the big, big bibliography and they weren't there. They don't exist. They don't exist. <laughs> and I was like, this is this is meant to be the bible for our fucking profession. And I was like, no wonder like medical doctors and all like go off on us. Like this is fucking ridiculous. That's fine. true. There's like ninety percent of the references are just like non-existent. You go to the back and you're like, what? Yeah, um, yeah. But and, I wonder if a lot of that had to do with the production itself. But like, but, but I, I mean, but I mean, like he actually has in-text references. So like, he's got Charlie Francis as a reference, and then I went to the big big obviously what he references Francis in, and it's not in the big rugby at all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my uh, friends. I mean, that's what you can do. No, you're good. That confusing. But go, yeah, go yeah, ahead, man. That's. So I, I think, um, as far as the, the biggest piece and kind of the motto that keeps me going is is the idea and i keep it actually on a little like note on my computer is that um that comfort for me is the enemy of achievement and Mm. that's kind of it it sounds super cliche but that applies to everything in this field whether i mean we've got interns here right now i'm coming in saturday morning they're working out um getting after it but it's like this profession it it's constantly changing and if you're comfortable in what you're doing, I mean, I mean, Max will tell you the same thing. It's like, I wake up, I question everything about that we do almost every day. It's like, well, we screwed this completely up. Like, this is out now. Like, I, like, and 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 like, we we do our research things like that. Don't don't let me knock us. But it's like, you're constantly having to question it. And that comfort piece can apply to the the ability, like we talked about, communicating with other coaches, getting outside of your comfort zone, and and not. I think we we kind of run into the problem of in athletics is we kind of silo ourselves off from other whether it be your sports med team whether it be like for me strength staff things like that and making sure that we're not just getting comfortable in our little like lane and that we're continuing to broaden uh, what we're doing and that, and for me that came down to um, a lot of the the physiology pieces of of things and that's that's where. I've kind of invested my time the most, um, but understanding the the physiology of of what your athletes are going through, and then understanding what your training programs are doing. It's like what we talked about earlier. Those, if you if you know that this training program, in the majority, obviously we have high responders, low responders, things like that. In the majority of your athletes is going to lead to this change, and then you know eventually you have to get to X, Y, and Z. I think continuing to further your understanding of that. Is, is really what this is all about. And then it's fine tuning and, and never saying like you never have the same program. You can have the same concepts, but same program year in or year out to ensure that, that you're not getting comfortable and just like, Oh, we've done it this way forever. It's like continuing to grow and develop yourself in this profession. Even, even on that comfort thing. I mean, with both of you guys, you've made big moves, you know, a few times. So as you said, you went from what Minneapolis to Colorado to Austin. I'm sure like even like doing stuff like that, you know, you know, situation when those situations pop up in your life, they're kind of like, you know, they're they're big decisions to make. So again, kind of this idea of don't let comfort get in the way of greatness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, leaving Denver, it was Denver. I mean, Max will tell you it's amazing. It, it was. I mean, Austin's great too, but Denver was was like my home for three years. It's the longest I've ever been somewhere. And then it was like, okay, I'm leaving. But yeah, I, I took my job. I took a car and a suitcase and drove out. Nothing else. I currently don't have anything else either, and I'll get yelled at in 
couple weeks for my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> he just he just got a, a car, a car, a suitcase, and super train, and all that was in the suitcase was just other books as well. <laughs> Good books. Just these guys right here. That's gas. So, boys, uh, finishing up here, what, what would your – and I suppose we kind of touched on this. What would your top resources – and the resources can be anything. They don't have to be just books. It can be podcasts, the online courses. It can be an individual. Yeah, it could be the fucking – I don't care. It could be the Bible for all I care. It could be anything. But what would your top resources be? And then what would your top advice be to – so, like, life advice. So, resources and life advice. Uh, top resource, ResearchGate. My God, there are more free papers than oh, you could yeah. ever imagine. Yeah. Stop trying to find all your answers in one book. Go read the source. Sci-Hub. Um, I don't. Sign up, huh? Sci-Hub is. Yeah, do you know? Do you know what Sci-Hub is now? Is that the? Which one's that? That's. It's like a. It's. It's like an illegal research gate. <laughs> That's the Napster, is it? That's the, the Napster of a uh, of research papers. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pirated research papers. God, we're losers. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, find free research articles, journals, papers, read them. Uh, and then I guess my biggest bit of life, life advice is kind of piggyback off of maths. Make sure you have right, water. Something. Yeah, make sure yeah, you have water. In a, in a doggy to... bowl right next to like you. Choking up. <laughs> My gosh, that was embarrassing. I'm surprised I even made it through. Uh, biggest life advice is enjoy what you do. Oh, uh, yeah. Big time. Just that simple. If you don't like it, don't do it. It's going to suck. <laughs> I enjoy what I do, so. Matt? Yeah. No, I would say, I mean, there's a reason we write together so much, but I would agree completely. Like, the research side of things, like, you should see my desk right now. It's stacked with, like, three different piles of different um, like papers that I'm looking at, whether it be like training, loading, monitoring, it's whether it's return to play, things along those lines. Uh, it's if you're not utilizing true research, you're missing the boat in what we're doing. It's, I mean, it, it's so valuable and you can pick up so much information, but at the same time, don't be the person that just reads the, Oh, the abstract and then the discussion and calls it good. Like, there, there are so many studies now, and, and I, I think we have to be careful with so many people are looking for publishing the next big thing that if you're not reading through their methods and understanding how they're getting to those conclusions, I think a lot of times some of that research can be a little bit misleading. And, and it just it just is like we're flooded so much with that. But And then understanding at the base level, what you're trying to figure out, like what answer, what question are you trying to answer? Because if you don't know that, you're not going to be able to search for these research papers effectively. Like mm. that's probably the biggest thing. And I think Max joked about, it. I don't know if you ever did it or not, but it was like, oh, we're going to, we're going to do a little short series on effective research searching. Like it, it's yeah. how many times it's like, that's I'll get an email. That's from needed. Say, that is needed. Yeah. yeah. It's like, Hey, I'm looking like and they and they don't really know what they're looking for and it's, so it's like you got to kind of break it down to the root of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I and I think that would be actually that would be really interesting. Did you ever end up doing anything with that? Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's somewhere. It's, like it's buried somewhere. somewhere. It's in his suitcase somewhere. There's, I got like three <laughs> half-made books somewhere too. There's actually a, so. a Nick Nick Winkleman did a really good podcast with Jeremy Boone on, on his one, Coach Your Best podcast, and like the it's uh, like the first twenty minutes of the interview was Nick just t talking all about how to do research, like how to 
go through literature and how to disseminate a paper and it was, it was brilliant because I had just started my master's like this is actually gold because it's helping with my research module so and, and I think like biggest advice kind of goes with what we were saying earlier like the comfort piece especially as, as a young intern like it's you have to understand I mean the, the, I have I'm, I stand out practically I was like I have the coolest job in the world but at the same time, you have to understand the work that it's taken to get where these coaches are. It's like mm. it's like everyone these days, it seems like, and, and I say everyone loosely, but it's like kind of wants the free handouts. Like, oh, I've been an intern for six months or two places. Like, where's my job? And it's like you have to go earn it. And, and it's kind of what Max said earlier. It's about the, the, uh, the little things that you're doing day in and day out. Like those – they add up and whether, I mean, and, and hopefully, uh, if, if you're doing those little things, it, it, it does take a little bit, I don't want to say luck, but it's where that, um, opportunity meets your preparation, yeah. um, it, it is, is critical for this too. Like it is one of those fields that there's limited spots and, and it's growing, but it's like, you have to find a way to set yourself apart. And whether that's like when I was at, um, St. Cloud small D2 school had absolute outstanding education there but when i started the site the van dyke strength site or like what max is saying with his instagram page like we had no idea that they would um progress in the way that they did but we continued to find ways to separate ourselves and that has allowed us both pretty uh, special opportunities i would say sweet so last two questions what books are you reading right now i'm reading the quantum enigma Mm. I'm a weirdo and read um, no. quantum physics for fun. Yeah, well, I'm reading this one. Uh, uh, let me see. Light in Shaping Life, Biophotons and Biology and Medicine. So I'm just as weird as you by, by Roland Van Wyck. Yes. <laughs> oh, you guys are – so what I'm reading right now, I've got one um, called Human Locomotion. Oh, yeah. It's about uh, more yeah. Gate analysis. Really enjoyed that one. That one was it was a gift from uh, Nick, the chiropractor I mentioned out in Denver. The, what's the, what's the name? What, do you know the name? The name of the author of that book again? What's his name? Uh, Thomas C. McCaud. That's him. M I C H A U D. That's a really good yeah, book. It, I mean, that book's it's been really good. And then the other one, um, doing a little more structural piece because of my role here, trying to keep guys obviously as healthy as possible. It's it's old school and it's it's. It's taken some time to get through, but there's this book called Rolfing, and it's by Ida Rolf. Ida Rolf, it's, yeah. It's, it's very, yeah, yeah, and and it's been kind of interesting. It, it serves as a, it's more of a, a foundation for even like they kind of go hand in hand with the human locomotion, a lot yeah. of the structural yeah. pieces like that. Um, so that's kind of been the kick that I've been on lately, kind of working through those two. That's another one I'm reading. Non non linear pedagogy in. Oh uh, yeah, in yeah. Can Josh love that? So that's fine. I, read, read I read that one. I'm, I'm just finished that one. And then I just finished, where is it? This one here. Skill Acquisition in Sport by uh, Nicola Hodges yes. and Mark Williams. That book is fantastic. So this one is an edited one where you've got different contributors to each chapter. And then the Nonlinear Pedagogy uh, in Skill Acquisition, it's four authors, but it's it's uh, it's it's just chapters It's um, just chapters from them four. Like It's not uh, it's not an edited book like where they're different contributors, but... The two of them are absolutely amazing, to be honest. I really enjoy them. Because right now I'm doing skill acquisition. Right now my master's is the module I'm going through. So it's pretty good. So finally, lads, <clears throat> I'm uh, the three of us meet up. 
where uh, let's say we're all back in, we're all back in Colorado just for for I, I've never been so it's my first time there but Matt you're back and we're all going for dinner and I'm like here lads guess what and you're like what I said I've got magical powers and you're like this guy's a fucking weirdo anyway so I I, <laughs> I, I tell you I tell you that we're going to dinner and both of you guys can invite five people so that's ten people so five for uh, Schmarzo five for Van Dyke and you can invite five people to this dinner dead or alive that's where the magic powers come in. Uh, who are you going to invite to this dinner oh, and why? Five people? You can invite five and, and Max can like one. I was like, I could do one. I'm gonna trying to think of it. It expands right. rapidly after. I'll do it quick. It's going to go downhill fast. Um, <laughs> anyone. I'll get, anyone. Uh, um, no family members because I want to invite them all. So by a cop out to not offend anyone, I Good. invite none. Good. Smart move. All right. Um. Then I'm going to invite my girlfriend, though. Mm-hmm. She gets to come because she'll be living with me. So that's one person. I'm inviting Yuri Vergashansky, who's speaking English for some reason this time. Yeah. Carmelo Bosco. Nice. Um, You're so killing me here. So far, my girlfriend's going to leave, though, so we'll have one more free spot because she's <laughs> not going to stick around if I'm bringing those two. Um, I got to get two more in here? Yeah, anyone. God. Theodore, Ro- Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. And uh, this is the weirdest mix of people. This isn't even, there's no. There's dude, no, we would have some. You're just going to see Teddy Roosevelt like wrestle fucking Yuri Berkshansky and Bosco. <laughs> Bos- Bosco, Bosco, Bosco will put TR through like a jump profile. He'd be loving it. So I just step off this box. Yeah, and you just jump up as high as you can. That's like when I wrestle the bears. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get one more in here. Gosh dang! Oh, oh man! I don't know. I got four. I'm right glad here. you went first. You're up, Matt. I got four. I got one more to go. All right, all right. I was smart here. I, I let Max answer, and I wrote mine down. Go. So here's what I'm here's what I'm thinking. So he took Rukashansky. So I'll take Bondarchuk. We'll bring that. All right. We'll, we'll talk about some. Yeah. Um, I would take Bill Belichick. Nice. So a football guy, like consistent, always. Like always at the top. Um, I'm not coming that's to then. You're, you're not, not coming. I'm not coming anymore. I'm kidding. Oh man. Um, I would bring Hank Krajinov. Oh yeah, so, Hank. Hank Krajinov. He's the man. So like, had a few experiences with him, and and every time I leave there saying, "What did we just talk about?" In the best way. It's just like he he's he's on another level. Um. Growing up, I'm going to be selfish here. I'm bringing another uh, sports icon. I'm bringing Michael Jordan. Yeah. Want to meet him. Like, You're big way fan. cooler than mine. And then um, based on based on Max finding the um, that book with all the spider webs on it, the cobwebs, I'm bringing um, uh, Matt Viev to dinner too. And, and he can speak English and well. We can talk about all of all of the studies that they've done all that I'm, no one I'll, can find. All you need now is Ishran, and there's going to be war at this fucking dinner. <laughs> Well, my party, I got gr- my girlfriend, Teddy Roosevelt, hanging out with Berkshansky Shansky and Bosco. I got a weird group. I need to bring one more. Yeah. I'm bringing Arnold. Oh, okay. now nice. We're, now it's a party. Now it's good. <laughs> Me and Arnold are smoking cigars and having scotch after this. That's absolutely hilarious. You guys yeah, T.R., you got to feed the bomb, T.R. I'm going to bring the whole crew from Predator. That's absolutely I'll get Jesse Ventura, Arnold, 
Um, <laughs> the whole gang. Yeah, your girlfriend's not going to have fun at this dinner. Not at all. So she's got to leave, so we have an extra she space. Can already. I can rock Carl Weathers. She did. She laughed. That's good. <laughs> invite. Didn't want to come. All right, boys. So this has been absolutely amazing. So, Schmarzo, Van Dyke, outstanding gentleman. So for all the listeners, guys, definitely share this episode out. But for now, take care, be well, and stay strong. Thank you.